Welcome to the MLB Trade Rumors Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the MLB Trade Rumors Podcast. My name is Dara Mad Dog McDonald and I am pledging to you today that I will retire from this show if the Oakland Athletics win the 2023 World Series. You can take that to the bank. We are going to be talking about the baseball goings on. The World Series is happening, which means that it is going to be the off season next week. Can you believe it? Um, that's a big time for us here at MLB Trade Rumors because we are going to be publishing our top 50 free agents uh, thing soon. It's our biggest post of the year. And uh, we're still working out the details, but I think we're going to do a special episode of the podcast next week. So that'll be a big week on MLB Trade Rumors, the top 50. There's always lots going on. So stay tuned for all of that stuff. Uh, but as for right now, uh, this week... Still have another week to go until that happens. With me right now is uh, my MLB Trade Rumors colleague, Anthony Franco. How's it going, Anthony? I'm doing well. Prepared to uh, take over the podcast when Tony Kemp hits a walk-off in Game 7. <laughs> That's right. Well, I won't actually retire. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go around doing various media hits. Uh, I expect my invitation from Howard Stern very shortly after that Tony Kemp walk-off that you just referenced. Okay, so... What Mad Dog wants to know is there have been rumors, you know, with the offseason coming up, people are starting to think about, you know, who's going to be available in the offseason. We had some uh, stories on MLBTradeRumors.com this week about Juan Soto. Now, Juan Soto is a very talented baseball man, and uh, of course, teams are going to want him, but will the Padres, who control him for another year, will they relinquish him? Do they want to trade him? What, uh, where do you come down on this, Anthony? So I, I lean towards no. Um, now, it's I think a lot of the motivation behind it is are the reports that the Padres want to scale back payroll. They were around the $250 million range entering this season. Um, it's not entirely clear how far back they want to go. The San Diego Union Tribune has thrown out like 200 as a potential target. Maybe they don't want to go quite that far, but it seems clear that they don't want to match the 250. Um, and so it makes sense that Soto, who's projected for a $33 million arbitration salary, is going to be the guy that um, opposing fan bases are like, oh, well, you want to trade, you want to cut payroll, trade us Soto. And uh, teams are going to do the same thing. So you know, it, there were reports like the Yankees and Cubs were preparing to make a run at him. And of course they are. They're going to be two of like half the league that eventually tries to prime away. Now, the thing is, they don't the Padres are in better financial shape than I think a lot of fans might expect, just given how many big contracts they've signed, because a lot of those deals are either backloaded or they had heavy upfront signing bonuses. and so. They don't have to move Soto. They're right now around like $180 million going into the offseason. Now, that's not factoring in the losses of Blake Snell and Josh Hader. That would be if Michael Waka and Seth Lugo opt out and test for agency. So they'll definitely need to make moves on the rotation front. And it's probably going to be a quieter offseason, but they don't have to trade Soto specifically. 
Yeah. And I guess the other thing, too, is, you know, we've talked a few times on this podcast about how the free agent market is lacking in uh, significant impact bats. So, I mean, Juan Soto is, you know, I mean, you could argue about who's a better hitter between him and Otani, probably. But, uh, you know, he's obviously, you know, top tier, one of the best hitters in the league. Um, still, he's, what, 25 years old. So, you know, arguably not even in his prime, maybe. We don't know. Um, so of course, very attractive, but yes, I, I guess the major thing we don't know is the financials because you're right that, uh, you know, the Padres could keep him and, uh, add a couple low cost starters, uh, which I think I would guess that that's what they do. I mean, just looking at the way like Preller has operated, uh, AJ Preller, the president of baseball operations for the Padres, there's always been this go for it thing even if they have to sort of get creative so we saw you know last offseason they made the big splash for xander bogarts but then they sort of filled the rotation with like more modest moves you know you mentioned waka and lugo these sort of low cost uh flyers where you sort of hope that the guy stays healthy and outperforms his contract a little bit so i wouldn't be surprised if they did a similar thing this offseason where they, uh, you know, we're putting together our picks, our team picks for the top 50 right now. And I'm putting the Padres on all the sort of um, low cost, high upside flyers where it's a guy who's sort of like it's risky. But, you know, if it goes well, you know, you could get good value for money. I'm putting the Padres on that and keeping Soto. Um but we'll see. Uh, you know, we saw the last time when Soto was with the Nationals, he was not available until he was. And, you know, we were all sort of like, there's no way they're going to trade somebody as good as Soto. And then they did. So, yeah, I think that made more sense for Washington though, than it does for San Diego. Like, I mean, Preller's been there a long time. They're obviously not about to kick off a rebuild the way that the Nats were. And so, you know, you could trade a, a Scott Barlow or a Trent Grisham, who's obviously they're not going to make anywhere near what Soto would make but they're clearly not as impactful pieces. So there are other ways that they could move some money around while keeping, you know, arguably their best hitter. Yeah. I think uh, you've mentioned this uh, not on the site or anything, but just in our uh, conversations, you've mentioned the possibility of trading Grisham, putting Tatis in center and then getting somebody else for the corner. That seem, I guess there's nothing to suggest that Tatis can't handle center. So I guess that would be a way to inject some extra offense into the lineup. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think they need better production out of the bottom of the lineup. Obviously, that was one of their their big issues, that the bench and the bottom half of the order just weren't good enough last year. Um, and, you know, I mean, we've talked about the market for corner outfielders not being super great, the market for hitters in general not being super great. But those kind of guys you can sometimes find um, either via an arbitration trade or a non-tender. Like, you know, I mean, Alex Verdugo's projected for around $9 million. And... Boston could trade him. It would just be a one-year commitment that's not super onerous, and he is a better offensive player than Trent Grisham. And so if you could flip Grisham for some sort of starting pitching help and then agree to a trade with Boston that brings in Verdugo and kicks Tatis to center, you know, I mean, it doesn't have to be him specifically, but there are ways that you could move pieces around to try to better balance the roster without subtracting a a player as good as Soto. Right. Well, it'll be perhaps... I mean, who knows? Maybe it will be uh, immediately shut down or it will be a story that will linger all throughout the winter. We will see. Um, Elsewhere on MLBTradeRumors.com this week, we had a big story about the Giants 
we mostly knew the details of the Bob Melvin stuff last week that uh, when we were recording our previous episode of this podcast, it was basically known that Melvin was going to be jumping from the Padres to the Giants. It wasn't official, but it was basically known. And then since we recorded that episode, they announced it, made it official, and also announced that uh, he and president of baseball operations, Farhan Zaidi, are going to be under contract for the next three years. So it seems like they've been given uh, a bit of a fresh start, a bit of a slate for the Giants. Uh, did this surprise you? How do you feel about this, Anthony? Uh, not really surprising to me. I mean, it's the Giants chairman, uh, Greg Johnson, I believe his name is, he's been pretty public about his support for Zaidi. And I think Melvin had a comment at his presser essentially saying like that he wasn't going to sign beyond where Zaidi was signed for. So if they wanted Melvin for a three-year deal, then they were going to have to extend Zaidi at the same time. I guess where are you at on the job that Farhan has done? Because I think generally a lot of the stuff that he, a lot of the moves he's made have made a lot of sense. But at the same time, it feels like every time they go into the season, I think the Giants are a playoff team and they end up right around 500. They've only made the playoffs once in his five years leading baseball operations. So just in general, do you think this was a, a smart decision to keep him around for at least another couple of years? And where do you think they should go this offseason? Yeah, they've been a very wild team because they had that 107 win campaign insanely in 2021 and then sort of fell back to middling results in the past two years. So it's like, where does which which one is the truth? Um, but I think just like logically, it sort of made sense if they wanted to get Melvin because, you know, it would have been sort of weird to bring Melvin aboard and then have the president in a lame ducks uh, situation where he only has one year left on his deal. And especially because, you know, we've talked, the giants have struggled to land the like big fish in free agency in the past couple off seasons. You know, they've had, you know, overtures to uh, Aaron judge and Bryce Harper and, you know, deals that almost happened, but then didn't. And then the, you know, last year when the judge thing didn't happen, they pivoted to Korea and they had a deal in place with Korea. But then there was, of course, the whole thing with the physical where the deal fell apart. And by the time that happened, basically all the other top free agents were gone. And so they had to sort of settle for all these mid-tier guys. You know, they spread their money around to, you know, decent but not elite players like, uh, you know, Hanniger and Conforto and Taylor Rogers and Ross Stripling and Sean Minaya and all that. Um and so it seems like they are really motivated to add a star player this winter. You know, there have been rumors connecting them to Cody Bellinger and uh, Yoshinobu Yamamoto and other players that we expect to get like really significant nine figure, big, huge deals. Otani, too, like, you know, they will probably be in the Otani sweepstakes. And so. I think it just made sense to put a little continuity in the organization uh, for those conversations because, you know, if you go to a free agent and you say, hey, come here, sign an eight-year, 10-year, 12-year contract with us because we're a great organization, but the president is in the last year of his contract and, you know, it doesn't seem like the club is committed to him, that maybe could be a factor. I mean, obviously we talk a lot about how free agents usually go where the biggest deal is, but sometimes I think if 
a couple of different clubs are each offering you like really large nine figure contracts. And it's a difference between like 300 million and 330 million. Sometimes you can choose the other factors. Like there was a Trey Turner last year, supposedly had a slightly bigger offer from the Padres than the one he accepted from the Phillies, but he wanted to be on the East coast. So, you know, I don't know. I think if you have that slight uncertainty in the organization, then that's, something that theoretically could get in the way of a free agent pursuit. Um, I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, I, it definitely helps. Um, now I think that some of the chatter that all oh, people didn't want to play for Gabe Kapler is probably overstated. I mean, you, you mentioned it with Correa, but I think that was more so a, you know, a factor of bad timing than anything else that he just happened to be the last star player who agreed to terms. And then the physical tanked uh, that deal but yeah i mean i think melvin's generally regarded as one of the best managers in the sport and it can't hurt to be able to pitch that you get to play for this guy who again it seems like most players really like playing for and that you have a kind of coherent vision for the organization that's like we're going to be aggressive we need star talent now we understand that and we're going to go for it and this is step one in terms of really pushing the chips in and, and trying to contend in the NLS. Yeah, I mean, I don't, it's so hard to evaluate managers from a distance because so much of what they do is, you know, in the clubhouse and, and their relationships that they have with the team. I'm currently reading the book Winning Fixes Everything by Evan Drellich uh, about the Houston Astros and the sign stealing and all that, which is great. Highly recommend. But he mentions at one point uh, he has a tangent about the Diamondbacks because of AJ Hinch being with the Diamondbacks for a while. And he mentions Bob Melvin's time with the Diamondbacks and mentions as an aside that Bob Melvin with the Diamondbacks, he got along better with the players than he did with the front office. And I found that very interesting because of the current context where Bob Melvin was, uh, you know, leaving the Padres because supposedly he didn't uh, get along terribly well with AJ Preller. So it'll be interesting to see you uh, because the Giants have had, I don't know from a distance, but Gabe Kapler has that reputation of being a more front office analytical guy than a player's manager. And now Bob Melvin has the inverse reputation where he's considered more of a player's manager. So hopefully I think the Giants are kind of hoping that that's a good pivot for them. But it seems like the Giants have a three-year window to sort of see how the Zaidi Melvin pairing works, but they, we expect them to be big players in free agency this winter. So we'll see how that goes. Um, elsewhere in front office stuff, the Red Sox made a hire Craig Breslow. Any impressions that you have on this, Anthony? Not super surprising. I mean, it, it seems like he's a, a very smart guy who kind of blends the New school, um, Ivy League background, has worked in the front office, familiar with data, with playing experience. He He's one of the rare, uh, at least in today's game, one of the rare um, front office leaders who played in the majors, spent over a decade there as a uh, big league reliever. A lot of that time in Boston, so sure, I'm sure that uh, that doesn't hurt. Um, makes perfect sense. Uh, he hasn't really talked yet about where he wants to take the organization. Um, and I know this was kind of a question for you when you were writing the Red Sox offseason outlook last week, it was just that they could go in a lot of different ways. And um, that was before they hired Breslow, but I think it's still the case even with Breslow now in place. So where do you think he should go this winter? And 
What do you make of the Red Sox outlook generally? Well, generally, uh, the the thing that I gleaned again, it's hard to like evaluate these guys just from you know reading the articles and whatever. But the thing that I gleaned from Breslow is that when he was with the Cubs, he set up their pitching lab. Uh, I'm sure it wasn't just him by himself, you know, with a blowtorch or whatever. Like I'm sure there was lots of people involved in setting up the pitching lab, but that was sort of something that he was instrumental with. And so I think that that is probably what drew the Red Sox to him because looking at their farm system now they have a great number of highly regarded position player prospects but the pitching pipeline doesn't look quite as good um so i think that that's sort of what they're hoping is that he will be able to complement that going forward um in the short term it's very interesting i mentioned this i had the chat with uh, red sox fans on the site and there were a lot of questions about what they would do this offseason and it's really tough to know because you know they just finished last in the al east and you know you have a new front office uh so there's an argument for sort of taking a year playing it slow like letting breslow get to know all the inner workings and how the how things work who's running the departments how they're doing all that sort of stuff but at the same time, the team isn't that bad. And so there's like a lot of those significant prospects are sort of close-ish to the major leagues. And so I could see, especially with the long-term pitching outlook not being great, I could see, the, uh, see them making a play for one of the significant free agent pitchers. I don't know if I would pick them to be the favorite on any of them, but because there's so many, you know, there's Snell and Aaron Nola and... Jordan Montgomery and a bunch of other guys around there, Sonny Gray and Eduardo Rodriguez, I could see them getting in that mix somewhere. Um, I don't know. Do you have any contrary feelings to that assessment? No, I think um, adding a at least some sort of stability to the starting staff, I agree, is probably the priority. I mean, middle infield, second base especially would, would be nice too, but um, there's a lot of talent in on the pitching staff uh, with Chris Sale and Nick Pavetta, Brian Bayo, Tanner Houck, Garrett Whitlock. But all those guys uh, have questions to varying degrees. None of them, I mean, Sale obviously has a long track record as a big league starter, but he's been injured for the last couple of years. And the rest of them have been either more successful as multi-inning relievers or they've just been inconsistent as starters. I mean, Bayo was really good in the first half and then tailed off and it seemed like he kind of wore down in, in his rookie season. So just bringing in some sort of stability, uh, even if it's more of a mid-rotation type, like, uh, you know, an Eduardo Rodriguez reunion or something like that, just to have a guy who you can count on for 150 solid innings um, in an otherwise kind of high, volat- high volatility uh, rotation makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. I mean, uh, these are things that we're just sort of uh, trying to deduce based on the roster needs. But, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll get more clarity on their interests as the offseason kicks off and the, the rumors start trickling in. Let us get to your questions. Uh, We put out the call for questions and got a bunch. So let's do some here. Uh, We got a question from Ryan who wants to know, uh, Otani is expected to set records with his next deal. Do you think he is one of the first or the last players to sign? It feels like he has to be near the beginning of the offseason. You know, just because he's going to be appealing to every big market team. Uh, especially the ones on the West Coast, but 
anyone that runs a high payroll is going to want to be in on Otani. And so it feels like, okay, if you're the Giants, um, say, and you're considering Cody Bellinger, but you believe that you're a realistic player for Otani, are you going to jump on Bellinger first, or are you going to hold off and wait to see what Otani decides before you commit to Bellinger? And it's the same sort of thing. You know, maybe Yoshinobu Yamamoto is kind of a, an exception to that, both because he has a, a limited time once his posting window starts uh, to sign and because he kind of appeals to pretty much everyone because he's so young. But if you're looking for an impact bat, Otani is by far the clear number one. And it just feels like if you're going to spend at that level, you want to make sure that you're not committing to somebody else who's an inferior player while Otani is a realistic possibility. Yeah, I think there are reasons to think that lots of people would want him to sign quickly because, as you mentioned, there are domino effects for other teams, for other players. There are going to be a lot of people who are frustrated if it takes a long time for him to sign because, you know, like you mentioned, teams like Dodgers, Giants, Mariners, whoever, if they don't get Otani, they want to be able to pivot to their plan B. And then similarly, those players who are the plan B, you know, the Cody Bellingers and the Matt Chapmans and the Blake Snells and what have you, are going to want time to talk to those teams that do that miss out on Otani and are looking to spend their money elsewhere. But at the same time, I do wonder if there is going to need to be at least a little bit of a courting period because Otani is so unique. There are going to be things beyond the financials that will have to be discussed because he is this two-way player and it's unprecedented. I would imagine that different teams have different feelings about how they want him to come back from what is effectively a second Tommy John surgery. I mean, it may not be a full Tommy John. The details were sort of unclear, but he did have Tommy John earlier in his career, and now he's having some sort of elbow surgery again and is going to have to miss the entire 2024 season. And so I would guess the team signing him to, you know, offering him a deal of 10, 12, 14 years, whatever it is, um, they are probably going to have some kind of forecast of what they think he's capable of or how much they're willing to let him just try and see what happens. Um, you know, what happens if he comes back in 2025 and he tries and his velocity is down and he's not quite as good on the mound as he was before? Do you move him to the bullpen? Do you make him an outfielder? Do you make him just a pure DH? I think different teams will probably have different tolerances for those kinds of things. And Otani and his reps will probably at least want to sort of suss that out and figure out the environment that teams are willing to offer beyond just the cash. So that might take at least a couple of weeks, even if there is pressure to have him sign first. Yeah. So last year, I think a lot of the big name free agents came off the board right around the winter meetings. Uh, which are in the first week of December. That's when Judge agreed to terms. That's when Trey Turner signed. Uh, I believe that's when, or at least close to when Correa originally agreed to his deal with the Giants. Obviously, that process played out longer than anyone expected. Would you expect Otani by the end of the winter meetings to have signed, or do you think it'll take beyond that? You know, I think winter meetings is a good sort of target, given everything that I just said, that you know, the World Series will be done in early November. So that would give a month for Otani. You know, like we said, presumably for a lot of teams, Otani is plan A. And so those conversations are probably going to happen 
early on in November. And so, you know, even if he takes three weeks to sort of narrow down the field and talk about detailed plans with a couple of the clubs that are the front runners or whatever, I think getting it done by the winter meetings is reasonable. And then that gives all the other free agents a chance to sort of get the ball rolling on their deals in early December. Do you agree? Yeah, that's that's about when I would expect. I would guess that Otani signs probably during the winter meetings. Uh, it's just speculation. I don't have any inside info. But then, like you said, that would allow the rest of the big free agents to either sign shortly thereafter the winter meetings or before Christmas ish. That like two week window before things slow down during the uh, during the holiday. Okay, turning to the next question, we got one from Will who says, who are the Twins' potential trading partners for Kepler or Polanco? Yeah, so uh, we'll start, I guess, with Polanco. Um, He seems the more intriguing target, uh, I think, to both of us, at least to me in particular, Um, both because he's under team control for two more years. The Twins have two team options on him. They have one option here on Kepler. And uh, the middle infield class, as we've talked about multiple times, uh, just is not good. Um, on the free agent market. So Polanco, you know, the twins don't have to trade him or anything, but they do have a lot of infield depth. And if they wanted to reallocate some money, maybe bring back uh, some sort of rotation help or something like that, they could. Uh, As far as teams that stand out to me as needing second base help, I mean, I mentioned Boston before. Uh, I think Seattle could. The White Sox and Tigers are, would be in division trades, obviously, but both of those teams have questionable second base mixes. I don't know if Minnesota would want to help out a team that's trying to track them down in the AL Central, but I think that they'll at least check in if the Twins put Polanco on the block. Um, maybe Milwaukee as well, depending on what happens with Willie Adames and if they move Bryce Terang over to shortstop. But those are kind of the teams that stand out to me as needing second base help. Yeah, those are all great choices. I mean, I guess you could throw the Blue Jays in there. They're uh, losing or they're set to lose Matt Chapman and Whit Merrifield to free agency. So the infield picture is a little bit different uh, for 2024 than it was for 2023. But the in-house options that they have are better suited for second base than third base because they got uh, Biggio and Schneider there. So um, it's probably more likely that they look for a third baseman than a second baseman. But Polanco played a little bit of third base uh, this year. So I don't know if that means anything to a prospective club if they view Blanco as a viable third baseman. Yeah, I mean, that could expand the market a little bit. Uh, I forgot to mention, I think Pittsburgh could also use second base help too. And, you know, they make sense as well. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, well, Kepler, I mean, Kepler as a corner outfielder, he's a strong defender. I would. Uh, there's probably lots of clubs who could fit him in there. Yeah, I mean, he's been like, linked to the Yankees in trade rumors for about five years, it feels like, uh, just because he's left-handed and he is like a high on base guy as opposed to, I mean, he has power, but he's not a power over on base guy the way that a lot of the Yankees hitters are, and they've needed corner outfit help for a while. And again, they don't really have a left field solution uh, in the short term, at least depending on how you feel about Everson Pereira. And so I think Kepler makes sense there. Um, I mean, the White Sox, again, they don't really have a right field solution. Oscar Colas was not good as a rookie. So they kind of make sense. Uh, you know, we mentioned San Diego as a team that in theory could bring in corner off with help and move Tatis to center. 
maybe the Angels as well. Um, but yeah, I, there are a lot of teams that could fit because Kepler can play. Really, he can play any of the three outfit spots, so he's probably better suited for a corner. Uh, you put him in that short porch in Yankee Stadium and he'll hit 40 home runs, I bet. Okay, so let's move on to another question. This one is from Benjamin. Who do you think are free agent pitchers the Orioles could realistically sign that would excite diehard fans? Do they have a shot at any of the NPB pitchers coming stateside? So they have the money for it, right? I mean, it's they don't have basically any long-term commitments. And so in theory, any pitcher on the market should be available to them. Now, the question is just whether they're going to kick up spending uh, because they've kept it near the bottom of the league for quite some time. And obviously, for the bulk of that, they were in a rebuild. And so, sure, it makes some sense to scale back major league spending, especially if you're pairing that with increased investment in like the international scouting staff and things like that or player development. But at this point, obviously, they're now firmly into win now mode. And so there's nobody who should be entirely off limits either on the free agent or trade market because they have both a ton of payroll room and the farm system depth that they could move guys and consolidate. Uh, but that was also true at the off season and they didn't really, or sorry, during the trade deadline and they didn't really do it. And so I guess, how do you feel about how aggressively both ownership and Michael Elias will be as they try to build off what was their best season in years? Uh, it's, quite fascinating you know i mentioned earlier in the podcast that i've been reading uh winning fixes everything and it is amazing how similar the playbook is uh both mike elias and uh sig meshdal were with the astros a few years ago just when that club was uh rebuilding and starting the competitive window that they're still in but the path so far has been so similar which is you bottom out like like full commitment to tanking i think both clubs had three consecutive hundred loss seasons or something similar just really really bad for a number of years build up the farm system and then even once you know when the astros built back up uh they still had a reluctance to trade from their talent and also a, a reluctance to give out huge free agent deals and so we've sort of seen this playbook happen in houston where they're willing to let Carlos Correa walk and then just replace him with Jeremy Pena, you know, let George Springer sign somewhere else and we'll replace him internally. Um, and the Orioles so far have followed that similar playbook where, you know, last year they had a pretty good season, just missed the playoffs and we expected an aggressive off season and it didn't really happen. And then they were having a great year in 2023 and the trade deadline came up and we thought, okay, now they have all these prospects, they should trade somebody and it didn't happen. And so, I don't know, I, I'm sort of at a point now where I'm not really going to expect them to do anything really, really bold until they do. That's my default position, is that they are going to be reluctant to, even though we have, you know, they have all these prospects and we sort of speculate that they have, they have to trade somebody because they don't have enough positions for all of these guys. I'm going to be skeptical of it until it actually comes to fruition. Yeah, I'm a little more um, willing to buy that they'll at least make some sort of consolidation trade um, for an arbitration eligible pitcher, you know, maybe a Shane Bieber type, something like that. As far as free agency goes, I mean, uh, you know, the question about whether they'll go after the NPB guys, I, I, it's hard for me to see them 
going after Yoshinobu Yamamoto uh, in a serious way. He's young, and it makes a lot of sense with their competitive timeline. You know, it's he would fit for sure. But this is a franchise that has never given up more than the one hundred and sixty-one million dollar Chris Davis extension, and I think we both agree that Yamamoto is going to at least get around and probably exceed two hundred million. Uh, and it's probably the same sort of thing for Blake Snell. So I, I don't know that I would expect them to go at the absolute top of the market, but somebody like Shota Imanaga, um, kind of in that mid-tier, maybe four or five years at like $15 million annually, something like that, uh, is totally viable. And I, I, I'm a little more willing to accept, I think, than you are that that kind of move would be on the table this offseason. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly possible. Like like you said, they have the payroll space to do it. Um, it's just that Chris Davis deal that you mentioned, that was the previous regime. I don't I don't think that the current regime has given out a multi-year free agent deal yet, <laughs> which is crazy. I think we looked it up before, and the last time they gave out a multi-year free agent deal was Alex Cobb, <laughs> which was like in 2018 or something. So anyway, but if there is a time for it, it is now. Like they just won over 100 games and there's no money on the books. So uh, I think that they should, but whether they will or not, we will see. Uh, but that is all the time that we have uh, for this week's episode of the MLB Trade Rumors podcast. I mentioned off the top that we are coming up on a big week for us. The offseason starts and it's going to get wild and we have our top 50 coming out. And like I said, we're going to try and do something different with the podcast, something longer, a little bit more in depth, maybe talking about the top 50 and the upcoming offseason. So keep an eye out for that. But the website will have all of the rumors as the offseason kicks off. And if you sign up for the newsletter, you can get all that stuff in your email. And if you sign up for the front office package, you can get rid of the ads and get extra stuff in your email that we work hard on. And we appreciate your support. And we will talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Remember to visit MLBTradeRumors.com and follow us on Twitter at MLB Trade Rumors.